Well, Happy New Year. And um, I know it's been said before, but again, welcome to 2020. A new decade, a new year, a new time. Things are fresh, things are new. Ready to turn over a new leaf and all the other sayings that I can think of. All that stuff is ready to go. Um, Just to get us started in 2020, um, if you're on GroupMe and if you're connected with your Bible Talk leaders, you probably got um, an electronic copy of one of these uh, reading plans. We've got some up here on the stage if you want to come get one after service today. This one in particular is just a New Testament 90-day reading plan. One of the other ones that I sent out, I think, was Bible in a Year reading plan. Uh, The reason why we sent them out is because the number one predictor of spiritual growth and maturity is daily engagement with the Bible. It is the number one predictor. And, And there are some who are not growing and maturing, some who are stuck in the same place spiritually, and those tend to be the same people that are too busy or don't have enough time to get into the Bible. And I just want to say this morning that um, it is critical. It is essential. Um, It is absolutely necessary. If we're going to grow as God's people, if we're going to accomplish the tasks and the purposes that he's given us, if we're going to walk with him on a daily basis, we've got to be in the word of God. Amen. People have asked me before, like, Tony, how is it that you memorize that scripture and you know where to go for every little thing? It's not because I'm smart. I'm actually, well, I'm actually unsmart when it comes to the Bible. I don't want to call myself stupid or dumb, but unsmart. But for the last almost 25 years, I've been in the Bible virtually every single day. Have there been days that I've missed? Sure. But 99% of those days... Over the last 25 years, I've had some kind of engagement with with the Bible. And if you do that long enough, something's got to stick. So it's not about being smart. It's about just, you know what, I'm just going to love God. I'm going to devote myself to somehow engaging with his word on a daily basis. And reading plans really, really help because... If you don't have a plan, the only other thing you've got is you'll open up, in the, you open up the Bible in the morning like, uh, here, okay. And you'll read that. You'll be really uninspired. But if you've got some kind of a plan, some kind of a direction where you know where you're going on a day-to-day basis and you're actually looking for something before you read it, your times with God are going to be that much more effective and productive and fruitful. Amen? So, I do pray that all of us devote ourselves to some kind of daily, personal plan of study in God's Word in 2020. Amen? Amen. Amen. Turn with me over to John chapter 16. And we're going to continue in the Gospel of John because we're not done yet. We've still got another, what, five or so chapters to go. While you're turning there, uh, there's a popular movie about 20 years ago called The Sixth Sense. Anybody ever remember watched that movie? The older ones of us have watched it. The younger ones of us are like, what? What? Never heard of that before. But um, it's about this boy. He's a, he's a child, and he can see and, and talk to the dead. It's about him, and then it's about his um, therapist or maybe his psychologist, his counselor, which is played by Bruce Willis, by the way. And um, he, he sees dead people, and he can talk to the dead. And that's where we get the the phrase, I see dead people. It's from that movie, The Sixth Sense. But anyway, the psychologist, Bruce Willis, 
In the beginning, he doesn't believe that the boy can actually see and talk to dead people. He believes he's just hallucinating or whatever it is. But eventually, he does believe that the boy has this gift, and he encourages the boy to use his abilities to help ghosts to finish their work so that they can go on back where they belong. And so the subplot in all this is that the psychologist is, has a bad marriage, and his, his wife has grown very distant and cold from him, and he's trying to reconcile with his wife throughout the movie. And since the movie is 20 years old now, I think that I can give away the, the, the plot twist. I can give it away. I can spoil it. It's okay. At the end of the movie, you, you realize that the psychologist's wife is distant and cold because she's grieving, and the psychologist has actually been dead the whole movie without realizing it, and he is one of the ghosts that the boy is seeing throughout the movie, okay? And so it's, I think it's M. Night Shyamalan, I think. Yeah, M. Night Shyamalan. I mean, he, he makes these great movies, but anyway, awesome plot twist in the end, and if you've never seen it, I'm sorry I spoiled it for you. But watch it anyway. But it is, it's, hard to have, it's hard to have the full perspective of something while it's happening, right? Or when we're in the middle of the thing, it's hard to have the broad perspective of the thing. And many times it's only after we've looked back on the thing do we fully understand what went on. So think about it. Think about the stupid thing that you said or that you did um, at, in sometime in 2019, it probably made sense to you at the time that you did it, right? But then when you look back, you realize that was really dumb. I've got a lot of mistakes like that, that in the moment it felt right, it seemed right, but then I look back and I'm like, man, why did I do that thing? And so it's like our passage this morning, the 11, the disciples, they're, they're kind of in the middle of a movie. They're trying to figure out what is Jesus saying and what does Jesus mean? And they really won't realize everything that he's saying until after the resurrection. Then things begin to make sense. So at this point in chapter 16, they've left the upper room after the Last Supper. They're on their way to Gethsemane before Jesus is arrested. And Jesus has just told them that he's going to be leaving and he explained that the Holy Spirit would come and replace him. The Holy Spirit would be another counselor, another guide for him. Alan did a great job last week explaining to us the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But as Jesus tells them that he's leaving, this naturally produces anxiety in the 11. And Jesus takes this time to comfort them. So really, most of chapter 14, all of chapter 15, and now chapter 16, is really Jesus trying to comfort these guys after he's told them that he's left. And so it's hard for them to receive that comfort because they're in the middle of the movie and they don't have the benefit of hindsight. And so it's like that for us, too, in many ways. We're in the middle of a movie. There's a lot of things that Jesus says in the Bible that we don't get. There's a lot of things about life that we don't understand. But it's only going to be at the end of the movie when the plot twist comes that we'll look back and we'll be like, oh, like, wow, I get it. <laughs> and so the central truth this morning for us is suffering is in this world. It will be turned to joy 
if we courageously hold on to Jesus. Amen? The title of the lesson this morning is, In a Little While. Let's pray. God, we come before you just so thankful, grateful, humbled. I'm honored to be called your sons and daughters when we know that we don't deserve it. We know that our sins separated us from you, and it was only through the blood of Jesus that we were able to be brought back to you, not because of our own works, not because of our own righteousness, not because of our own strength or power or wisdom or intellect, but God, because of your grace, because of your mercy, because of your love, thank you for what you've done in our lives. Thank you for constantly communicating to us and revealing yourself to us, even though we don't understand, even though we don't get it. Father, please be patient with us. And Lord, we look forward to that day in the end when we get to see your face and everything will be made clear to us. In the meantime, help us have faith. Help us to be courageous and bold and to hang on to Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 John chapter 16, verses 16 through 33 says, Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you'll see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you'll see me, and because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you'll no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the father on your behalf. No, the father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe, Jesus replied? A time is coming and in fact has come when you'll be scattered, each to your own home. You'll leave me all alone. Yet I'm not alone, for my Father is with me. I've told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Point number one this morning, your grief will turn to joy. 
your grief will turn to joy. This section here in verse 16 begins with Jesus making another confusing comment about him leaving. He says, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. And they were confused. They didn't know what he meant. Even though he had already told them that he was going to be leaving and they weren't able to go where he was going, they didn't have the benefit of of hindsight that we have. Foresight is blurry. Hindsight is 2020. We see it very clearly. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I know exactly what happened yesterday. Does that make sense? And so what may seem obvious to us as we read John 16 was very hard for them to understand. They saw Jesus as the one who would start a revolution and that would deliver them from the Roman occupation. And they wondered, how can that happen if Jesus leaves? And what's he referring to? Well, from hindsight, we know when he says, in a little while you will see me no more, it means basically that in less than 24 hours, he's going to be dying on the cross. He's going to be dead. And then when he says, after a little while you will see me, we know that three days after his crucifixion, he's going to be resurrected from the dead and appear to them again. But you notice Jesus didn't explain that. It would have been really easy to just say, you know what, I'm going to be gone in less than 24 hours because I'm going to die on the cross and then I'm going to rise from the dead. I'll be back again so that you guys can understand. He didn't do that, probably because they still wouldn't have understood. Instead, Jesus deals with the effects of his leaving. He deals with the anxiety that was brought up in their hearts as a result of him leaving, which is their grief and their sorrow. And he says, when he dies, that they will weep and mourn. And at the same time, the enemies of Jesus will rejoice. And in verse 20, he says, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. That's good news. That's hopeful. And there's always hope when Jesus is involved. And think of how this must have encouraged them at the time as they were going through the anxiety and the the, the stress and the the emotional pain that they were feeling. And notice as Jesus says that their grief will turn to joy, that their grief isn't removed and replaced by joy, but the very grief and the sorrow itself was transformed and turned into joy. God can take the worst situation and he doesn't have to throw it out and replace it with something better. God is able to take that bad, messed up situation and he's able to alter it. He's able to dress it up. He's able to change it, mix it around, transform it and make it something awesome. That's how powerful God is. And he uses the perfect illustration in verse 21. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her, ch- her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child has been born into the world. I've never had a baby before. That might surprise you. But I've watched Leslie have two babies. And I've watched a lot of baby births on television, okay? It looks like it's really, really painful. (laughs) It looks like it's really painful even with the epidural, okay? 
And I suppose that if men were the ones to have babies, the human race would die out pretty quickly. <laughs> because I know for me, I am not having no baby. I am not going through that pain. Baby, you can stay up in there. My family line would be cut off instantly. No more mullets after me. I would be done. And I would assume for many of the brothers, it would be the same thing. Most of the brothers are like, uh-uh, I ain't doing that. So, so hats off to you mothers, okay? Hats off to you for being able to, to, to bear that kind of pain. And, and think about it. The worst pain that Jesus is, is talking about that the disciples are going through, the only thing that he compares it to is the pain of childbirth, which says a whole lot about how painful it is to have a baby. Anyway, from what I observed, because again, I haven't experienced it, but from what I observed, it seems like as soon as the baby is born, and it's placed into the mother's arms that the pain is immediately forgotten. And then all of a sudden, it's nothing but big smiles. And I remember when we had, she had, Leslie had, Brooke and Anthony. I remember thinking, what happened? Like literally 45 seconds ago, you were crying bloody murder. And now it's all sunshine and rainbows. It's all butterflies and candy canes now that the child has been placed into your arms. God turned the grief into joy. In verse 22, Jesus says, So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. And he's saying that when he dies, it will be one of the most painful experiences that they will ever have. But when he raises from the dead, that same situation will be transformed and it will be turned into rejoicing. And if you notice, he, he says a few times, he says, you will see me, you will see me. But after he talks about in verse uh, 21, he says that I will see you. And he's saying that he's going to initiate the contact. He's going to see them again. And it will be a permanent joy that no one will ever be able to take away because Jesus has defeated the most wicked of forces on earth, which is sin and death, right? Nothing more you know, powerful, more wicked than sin and death on planet earth. And if Jesus can beat that, Jesus can beat anything. And so whatever joy that we have from Jesus defeating sin and death it cannot be taken away because the most powerful thing to take away itself has been destroyed. Many times our worst situations turn out to be our best opportunities for joy. That failed test that gives you the fire in your belly and, and teaches you the lesson that you need to make the better grades. The, the lost job that leads you to a new, more rewarding career path the emotional trauma or abuse that turns into unbelievable character growth and the ability to help other people that have suffered the same thing, the downward spiral in your life that eventually leads you to Jesus Christ and your salvation, God is able to take these really painful, nasty situations and transform them into something of great joy and rejoicing. 
Unfortunately, that's hard to see when you're in the movie. It's only when you look back on it in hindsight that you get the clarity of it. And so with Jesus, indeed, grief is turned into joy. But also recognize that if God is turning grief into joy, then grief must be the path to joy. Right? And that sorrow must be the first ingredient of joy. And like a mother in labor, pain is where the joy begins. It starts with pain. It starts with grief in order to get to the transformed joy. And so if you're experiencing sorrow or grief or pain this morning, you've got the makings of true joy in the future. You've got step one. You're on the path. You've got the first ingredient. And I know right now it doesn't feel good, but you're in the movie. And it's only going to be in hindsight when you look back that you'll realize, oh, I see what God was doing there. Amen? Second point. Our joy is complete. Our joy is complete. Now, look with me here in, in verses 23 through 27. Because it's, to me, it's just kind of, con- Jesus has a lot of confusing things, but this, this is up there. Anyway, verse 23, in that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you'll receive and your joy will be complete. Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I'll no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the father on your behalf. No, the father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. And so what's Jesus saying here? I think he's saying that after a little while, In that day, when they see him again after the resurrection, and when they're filled with the Spirit, they will enjoy a relationship with the Father that they have not enjoyed up to this point. And up to this point, they've asked Jesus for understanding. They've asked Jesus for blessing. They've asked Jesus to supply all of their needs. But there will be a time when they ask the Father directly in Jesus' name and receive what they have asked, therefore making their joy complete. And so think about it. What was only a promise to them, we have. The Holy Spirit was promised to them, we have the Holy Spirit today. The relationship that Jesus put out in front of them, that you're going to basically go to the Father directly, we have today. We have this complete joy, this intimate fellowship, this deep relationship with the Father that the apostles were not able to have under the old covenant. Now, I know that some of you are quickly throwing red flags on the play and you're thinking, you know, Tony, but I'm not receiving what I've asked for. And you're saying, you know, many times, in fact, most of the things that I ask for, I don't get from God. And you know what? I feel the same way many times. And there's a lot of verses like this, in particular written by John. But John 14, 13 says, and Jesus says, I will do whatever you ask in my name 
so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. John 15, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Sounds like a blank check, doesn't it? 1 John 5, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that what we have asked of him, we have received. Even in Matthew chapter 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. So verses like this can be frustrating for the Western mind. Because we clearly are not getting everything that we ask for. And so it can seem like, well, God, you must be lying. Either you're lying or I'm doing something wrong. But this whole thing is broken here because you said, ask and I'm going to get. I've been asking and I ain't getting. Something's wrong here. Either I don't have enough faith. I'm not trying hard enough. I'm not believing hard enough. I'm praying the wrong way. God, you're really not as good as you say you are. God, you don't really care as much as you say that you do. But remember, we're in the movie. We're in the movie. We have not gotten to the end as yet. Doctrines many times in the Bible are presented in paradoxes, which means self-contradicting statements. For instance, is Jesus fully God or is he fully human? Both. The answer is yes. He's both God and fully man at the same time. Eastern versus Western culture and thought are very, very different. Ancient Eastern thinkers presented truth in tension-filled pairs and paradoxes. Many times the reasoning in an Eastern mind is circular. Reasoning in a Western mind is linear. It is straight. A plus B must equal C. And if you tell me to ask and I'm going to get it, then you know what? I'm about to ask and I best be getting it. (laughs) Right? That's the way that we think. That's not the way that the Eastern mind thinks. And the Bible was written with an Eastern mind. Does the Bible teach the sovereignty of God or the free will of man? How much choice really do we have in the things that we do or does God orchestrate all of the events of our lives am I able to do anything outside of God's will if he's that powerful and that sovereign you see what I'm saying circular thinking are we saved by grace through faith alone or is faith without works dead how much of my salvation is based upon me doing something or responding? And how much of it is based upon God and his just free mercy and grace in my life? Same thing. Circular thinking, Eastern thinking, paradoxes, tension-filled pairs. So the Eastern mind presents things and the Bible presents things and truths in this way as comfortable, as uncomfortable as it is. The purpose is for us to live in the tension, the uncomfortable tension of kind of, but if this, then that, but that, then this, but that, then this. And you kind of feel like, ah, like, just tell me the answer. God wants us to sit in that. He wants us to sit in it. 
Because you know what? The way that we think when we know an answer, guess what? Well, I don't need you anymore. Right? I got it all figured out. Go on about your business. I'm going to go on about my business. God says, no, I don't want you there. I want you to be dependent and reliant upon me. So I'm going to present this in a circle so that for the rest of your life, all you do is you come to me and you ask me how to figure this out. And along the way, I will give you nuggets and bits and pieces of wisdom, but you really won't understand it all until you get to the end of the movie. But all along the way, we're going to build a really cool relationship with one another. Which is what God wants. He wants the relationship. So I understand. I mean, I I feel you. I mean, these same passages have caused me much stress, much, much anxiety for many years. But God has given me some nuggets and teaching me that basically he wants me to be close to him. So, when we read, ask and you'll receive, and we're confused because obviously we're not receiving what we've asked for, is God a liar? Does he not love you? Do you not have enough faith? No, of course God loves us. Yes, you have enough faith. Jesus said all you need is the faith of a mustard seed. I mean, if you ain't got that, I mean, everybody's got that, right? Faith of a mustard seed. The question then becomes, if he's not going to give me everything that I asked for, why does he keep asking me to ask him? Why? It's because he wants us to be dependent upon him. He wants us to rely on him. There was a time when I was on the brink of resigning to apathy with this with God. I reasoned that, you know what, God, you're just going to do what you want to do anyway. Just forget it. I mean, why, why am I even asking you? I mean, it seems like anything I do, you don't want to do. I'm always on the wrong side of your decision, so just forget it. Just do what you want. Whatever. I'll just surrender. When I had that attitude, do you think that my relationship with him improved, or do you think it got worse? It got worse. Why? Because I had the answer in my mind. God, you're obviously bad. So I'm going to go do my own thing. But it's only once I finally got humble and I surrendered that I continued to say, I just read, well, you keep asking me to ask you, so let me just go ahead and ask you. I don't understand why I'm not getting the stuff that I want, but I'm going to keep asking you. And as I did that, guess what? My relationship with him got better. It improved, even though I didn't fully understand And so I don't think God's prime objective is to give us everything that we ask for. That would not be healthy. That would not be safe. I think his prime objective is relationship. And even though from a Western point of view, we don't literally get everything we're asking for, he continues to invite us to ask him for the purpose of coming closer to him and depending upon him. And this completes Our joy. Consider this. Joy is not found in having everything that we've ever wanted. Joy is not the absence of want. Joy is in having needs so great 
that only God can fulfill them. And as we lean and rely on him and as he answers our prayers, that is true joy. It's not having everything that I want. Give me a car. Give me some money. Give me this. Give me that. That does not produce true joy. True joy is the result of remaining in Jesus. That's true joy. Some of us don't have joy because we're not remaining in him. And as a result, we're asking for things that glorify ourselves versus glorifying the father. God doesn't grant that request. We get upset. So we think God's a liar and we pull farther away from God. We get mad at him. But ask yourself, have you given up or are you still asking? Because that's really what it comes down to. You're not going to figure it out. It's not going to make sense. You're in the middle of the movie. But have you given up asking or are you still coming to him asking for the things that you want? That's the question. And so we've got to surrender what we want in our independence We've got to learn to be dependent upon him like a branch is to a vine. And this asking brings us closer to him and allows us to experience this relationship that was promised to the 11. And this completes our joy. If you're a guest this morning, God wants you to have this joy as well. We want you to have this joy. It's free and it's available to everybody this morning. Just ask whomever brought you this morning. Ask to be taught how you can have this joyful relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And somebody will be more than happy to teach you. Last point. Take heart. Take heart. Jesus uh, speaks with a little bit more clarity in verse 28. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father little bit more clarity, but, and then it seems like it clicks with them because they say, now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things. You don't even need to have anyone asking questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Have you ever acted like you knew something when you didn't really know <laughs> that something Somebody's talking to you and they're like, well, you know, of course, it's because of the flux capacitor. And you're like, yeah, yeah, that's right. It is because of the flux capacitor. And you think in your mind, what in the world is a flux capacitor? You ever done that before? I think that's what they're doing here. Jesus said, I'm leaving. They flip out. He spends two chapters explaining, 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 explaining. Jesus-style explaining, which is not clear. They're like, I still don't get it. But, amen. Now you're speaking clearly, Jesus. Yep, we get it. And you know that they didn't really get it because Jesus basically says, Do you now believe? Verse 31. Like, okay, now all of a sudden you get it. No, you don't. You don't get it. You still don't get it. Because you're going to be scattered, each to your own home. You're going to leave me all alone. You don't get it still. (laughs) 
we're crazy. People are crazy. (laughs) I think he's telling them, you know what? You've still got a ways to go. You're not out of the woods yet. You say you believe and that you finally get it, but you're about to leave me high and dry. You haven't arrived yet. You're still in the movie. You're not in the clear. You're still in this world, and in this world you're going to have trouble. And I've told you these things in advance so that you can have peace in me when you finally do understand. But in the meantime, take heart. Have courage. I have overcome the world. And so he's, he's pre-encouraging them. He's encouraging them in preparation for the thing that hasn't happened yet so that when the thing does happen, they can look back on what he said and they can be like, oh, I get it now. I am encouraged. Do you see what I'm saying? The fact is, as much as they say they understand and as much as we think we understand and have arrived in Christ, the fact is we live in a fallen, imperfect world that's full of suffering. And while there are some majestic places on planet Earth to behold with the eye, this is not heaven. And since it's imperfect, since it's fallen, I don't care what the mega preachers say, we cannot expect perfection and shielding from suffering in this world simply because we follow Jesus Christ. We're not getting around it. We cannot escape it. We've got to expect it and accept it. Our earthly problems have not all been solved because we're in Christ. He didn't say that we might have trouble in this world. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. It's coming. But as true as the reality of suffering in this life is, suffering is not the end. Suffering with no end is the world without Jesus. It's lost without hope. We might as well medicate ourselves, entertain ourselves, uh, be comfortable and pursue any kind of temporary pleasure that we possibly can if there's no hope in this life. And so how do we deal with the trouble in this world? It's with courage. That's what Jesus says. You're going to have trouble, but take heart. Have courage in some translations. I've overcome this world. Courage is not the absence of fear, but it's the presence of fear, and it's acting in spite of the fear. We deal with it by facing fears with our eyes on Jesus instead of on the wind and on the waves. And the hope that we have in Jesus is what allows us to suffer and not give in. Jesus is why we can be courageous in the midst of suffering. It's because he's overcome. It's because he's triumphed. It's because he's the victor. It's because he has won. That's why we can be courageous. Romans 8 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Psalm 30 says, weeping may stay for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And so we are in labor pains in this world in 2020. We are experiencing suffering, but take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. And like a mother who sees her child's face for the first time and forgets her pain, it will be so worth it in the end. Our grief will be turned to joy. 
And when Jesus returns, our light and momentary troubles will be just that. Light and momentary. When we see Jesus, we will forget. We will forget the arguments with our spouses. We will forget the embarrassing teasing and bullying of our schoolmates. We will forget the sorrow of a loved one passing away. We will forget the devastation of divorce. We won't remember the humiliation of not being able to pay a bill or the stress of our children's well-being or the horror of being the victim of a violent crime or the fear of growing old and losing significance. It will all be butterflies and rainbows in that day when our sorrow will turn to joy and we meet him face to face. In the meantime, let's remember that we're in the middle of the movie. It doesn't all make sense right now, but take heart and be courageous, church, because it will in a little while, because Jesus has overcome this world. Amen. Amen.